Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Today we're reading verses 1 to 4. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, we're in a series in Romans 8 that we started last week that we're calling uh, Eight Reasons to Rejoice in the Gospel. And you know, it would be such a tragedy for us um, to become so familiar with the Gospel, uh, have it be so mundane and dull to our ears and our hearts that we no longer uh, rejoice in it, that it no longer affects and stirs our hearts and our joy in Christ. And so we're taking eight, re- eight weeks to look at eight reasons to rejoice in the gospel. And so with that, please stand as we read and receive God's word from Romans 8. We stand as an act of worship as God himself speaks to us this day in his word. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And would we pray once more. God, we ask that by your spirit, your word would be made clear to us, that it would not only speak to us, but it would pierce us. And as it pierces us, that it would give us new life and new hope and new reasons for joy. God, we thank you for this time. Be with us now as we pay attention and listen, not only with our head and our ears, but with our hearts and our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Years ago, the famous uh, Christian author and pastor, Joshua Harris, wrote a story that he called The Room. And it was a story that he wrote when he was just uh, 20 years old. And it's a bit extended, but I want to read us uh, the story because I think it really helps us understand the situation, the mindset into which Romans 8 verse 1 speaks to us. Uh, It's a bit lengthy, but but follow the story and, and try to make it personal where you hear his 20-year-old examples. Uh, Instead, uh, hear your own, fill in the blank sort of with your own personal details. Now, this is how the story goes. In that place between wakefulness and dreams, I found myself in the room. There were no distinguishing features save for the mysterious array of black filing cabinets. They were like the ones in libraries that list titles by author or subject in alphabetical order. But these files, which stretched from floor to ceiling and seemingly endlessly in either direction, had very different headings. Without being told, I knew exactly where I was. This lifeless room with its small files was a crude catalog system for my life. Here were written the actions of my every moment, big and small, in a detail my memory couldn't match. A sense of wonder and curiosity coupled with horror stirred within me as I began randomly opening files and exploring their content. Some brought joy and sweet memories, others a sense of shame and regret, so intense that I would look over my shoulder to see if anyone was watching. A file named Friends was next to one marked Friends I Have Betrayed. The titles ranged from the mundane to the outright weird. Books I have read, lies I have told, comfort I have given, jokes I have laughed at. 
Some were almost hilarious in their exactness. Things I've yelled at at my brothers. Others I couldn't laugh at. Things I have done in my anger. Things I have muttered under my breath. I never ceased to be surprised by the contents. Often there were many more cards than I expected, sometimes fewer than I hoped. I was overwhelmed by the sheer volume of the life I had lived. Could it be possible that I had the time in my 20 years to write each of these thousands or even millions of cards? But each card confirmed this truth. Each was written in my own handwriting, each signed with my signature. When I came to a file marked Lust, I felt a chill run through my body. I pulled the file out only an inch, not willing to test its size, and drew out a card. I shuddered at its detailed content. I felt sick to think that such a moment had been recorded. An almost animal rage broke on me. One thought dominated my mind. No one must ever see these cards. No one must ever see this room. I have to destroy them. In an insane frenzy, I yanked the file out. Its size didn't matter now. I had to empty it and burn the cards. But as I took it at one end and began pounding it on the floor, I could not dislodge a single card. I became desperate and pulled out a card, only to find it as strong steel when I tried to tear it. And then the tears came. I began to weep. Sobbed so deep that the hurt started in my stomach and shook through me. I fell on my knees and cried. I cried out of shame from the overwhelming shame of it all. The rows of file shelves swirled in my tear-filled eyes. No one must ever, ever know of this room. I must lock it up and hide the key. I wanted to share that story because I think it's a vivid illustration of the feelings I think uh, many of us are familiar with. Things like guilt and shame and embarrassment and fear of being exposed and the need to hide, the desire to cover up, the, the desperation for secrecy. And we're all familiar with these things because we're also all familiar with sin. Don't you have things in your life that you wouldn't ever want discovered? Things that you pray and hope that God would keep in the past. Now imagine that sense of horror, embarrassment, or guilt, if somehow these screens began to catalog and list each one of those secret sources of shame and sin for all to see. How would you feel about it? What would you do about it? You see, all of us, we have things in our past uh, that enslave us, that, that make us feel guilty, things that, that we try and we pray and we hope that we would forget about, but keep constantly coming back to haunt you and to accuse you and to condemn you. And for some of us, it's not even things in the past. There are present things, things going on in your life now, things that you're working over time right this very moment in order to keep a secret so nobody else would find out. You know, what are those things that you're harboring in your heart? What are those things you are fantasizing in the solitude of your own mind? You know, it's so sad that we are called to meet with God in the secret, but it's so often in the secret that we're running away from God. 
You know, and it's natural to feel afraid of being found out, exposed, shown for who we really are. The question isn't, do you have those sins? Do you have that kind of past or present guilt? I know you do, because I know I do. But the question is, how do you deal with it? What do you do with it? Do you just tell yourself it's no big deal? Do you bury it and wish and pray it would go away? Do you try to make up for past things by trying to be a better person now? By making up for bad things with good things. Now what do you do? And it's into this situation that Paul speaks and writes Romans 8 verses 1 to 4 and it comes to us as such joyful and good news. You know, last week I, I quoted John Piper who said that the greatest, uh, the greatest book in the world is the Bible. And of that greatest book, the greatest letter is the letter of Romans. And of that letter, the greatest chapter is Romans 8. But then he went on to say this. He said that in that great chapter, the greatest verse is Romans 8, 1. There is that therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this is R1. This is reason one to rejoice in the gospel. This is our beginning point. In Jesus Christ, we have a freeing declaration. Every week, we're going to go over an R1, an R2, an R3. R1, in Jesus Christ, we have a freeing declaration. If you remember this verse, if, if you know and believe this gospel and it's saturated into you, you will have both the armor and the sword to fight against the lies and the schemes and the condemnation of your sin, the condemnation that the world throws at you, the condemnation that the evil one piles on top of you. You know, I hope that all of us uh, at least try to begin memorizing Romans 8. Verses 1 to 4. Some of you uh, messaged me telling me how hard and difficult it is. And if you think four verses is difficult, next week is verses 5 to 11. But you can do it. But friends, if you are struggling, I don't give up. Maybe if you have a really difficult time, try in that section to just memorize one verse. And if you struggle to memorize verses 1 to 4, at least memorize verse 1. R1, reason 1 to rejoice in the gospel. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now why does Paul start here? And it's because he knows the condition of humanity. He knows it personally himself. He shared about it in Romans 7, about his struggle with sin. He knows that humanity, himself, ourselves, left to ourselves, there is nothing in us that's good or that we can be proud of or we can boast of. You know, in Romans 7, Paul opened up very personally about his own struggles where he said, the evil that I don't want to do, why do I keep doing? And the good that I so want to do, why can't I do? And he's torn up inside and he's wrestling with this. And it's easy for us to read Romans 7 and look upon him and think, man, how could he struggle with such thing? He's the great apostle. But, you know, we'd be arrogant. We'd be self-deceived to think that Paul alone suffers with these things. These are the realities in our lives as well. Every single one of us born under Adam's curse are born with this struggle. We are, we are born into sin. And this is important. Do you know, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. 
Let me say that one more time. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are born sinners. We're born under what Paul calls in verse 2, the law of sin and death. And so when we're born, we're born powerless and unable to obey God. Unable to please Him, to live righteously, to keep His law, to maintain His standard. And therefore, as a result, when we stand before God, we stand before Him as perpetual failures. We're condemned under God's law, and as much as we try to prove our innocence or prove our righteousness, we all fail miserably. Now, this is not good news at all. Nobody wants to start here. This is not the reason to rejoice. But it's where we need to begin because it's into this bleak portrait of our true fallen condition that the gospel breaks into our world and it gives us air to breathe. Now, we're under condemnation because God has a law and we have broken that law. That's what the beginning chapters of Romans is all about. Now, I want to clarify this about the law. The law is good and perfect. You're not condemned because the law is bad. You're condemned because you are bad. The law just helps you see it. You're not condemned because the law is bad. There's something wrong with the law. You're condemned because you are bad and there's something wrong with you. And we can feel this. There's a lot of everyday experiences that, that kind of show us this. You know, I wear contact lenses, and, you know, some at the retreat saw me wearing my glasses, and I know some of you wear prescription glasses. And personally, um, th th there, are, there are two uh, appointments once a year that I hate going to. Uh, one is uh, the dentist, and the second is to see the eye doctor, because uh, I always feel condemned to going to either. You know, when I go to the eye doctor, they put you in that room where they turn off the lights and you're on that, it looks like a torture machine, and you sit down and they tell you to rest your chest, take off your glasses, they turn off the light, and then what happens? They shine a series of letters and they ask you, the doctor asks you, can you read for me uh, the letters on the lowest line that you can see clearly without squinting? And for someone like me with really awful vision, all I can see clearly is the big Z on the first line. But I don't want to admit that that's all I can see. And so, has this happened to you? You're kind of like looking below and you can kind of make it out and you just start, you know, going. And you're fumbling through it and you're actually making good progress. And, oh, yeah, R, S. Uh, and, and you're actually doing okay. The doctor's going, me, okay, okay. But then you get to that one letter, like a C. But you're like, is it a C or is it an O? Because it's so squiggly. Or a B or a D. And you realize that, you know, you, you haven't fooled the doctor. And that feeling of, 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 of inability to see clearly or their insufficiency, inadequacy, that's not a problem with the letters. Anybody who has 20-20 vision will sit down and see those letters perfectly clear. So the problem isn't with the letters, the problem with, you, with your eyes, your vision. You're the problem. And yet the letters condemn you, not because they're bad, but because you are bad. See, that's the same way the law of God is. The law of God is perfect and it is good because God is perfect and he is good. The reason it condemns us is because something in us looks at it and sees it in a blurry way. And so Paul begins here, and he begins the early chapters of Romans saying the law of God is good. The problem is none of us are righteous. No, not one. We can't obey God's law. We all fall short of his glory. And so we all have a guilt, and we all have sin that we can't get rid of. And so we stand before God condemned. 
And there's a stack of evidence piled high against us. And there's really nothing we can do about it. And that's the bad news into which Paul speaks this gospel truth. Romans 8, 1. That there's no condemnation. And, and it's, it's amazing, it's mind-boggling actually, that God would choose to clear you by taking your condemnation. He would take your punishment. He would move it as far as the east is from the west. And that God would deal with your sins when you couldn't. Now listen, this is what the text is not saying. God is not saying that you now have nothing condemnable in you. Oh yes, you do. You and I, we have plenty of things still in us condemnable. But what God is promising is that he will not count that condemnation against you. And that, friends, means this. This morning, no matter what you brought into this sanctuary with you, no matter what self-condemnation you brought with you because you're aware of your own inadequacies, no, no matter what condemnation the world has placed over you and is pressing on you because of all the ways you've failed and not lived up, no matter what condemnation you bring in with you because the evil one is accusing you in quiet whispers into your ears about the way you've failed God, no matter what you've brought in here with you, when God looks at you, when God sees you, he does not see a condemned criminal, but he sees a cherished child. To those united by faith in Jesus, it doesn't matter what past sins you once lived in, those sins that you relished and you loved. It doesn't matter what present sins you are struggling with and those sins which entangle you. And it doesn't matter what future sins you are going to fall into. The declaration of God is pronounced over you this day. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. You are free from it. And this is an objectivity we need to believe. And this is why the gospel doesn't just require head, and it doesn't just require heart. It requires head and heart, soul and mind. Because the reality is, although we hear these things to be true, every day you may feel condemned. You experience condemnation in your life. And your head knows, everything you've learned knows that you are not under condemnation. But the Christian life is your heart catching up to your head. Your heart catching up to what your head already knows to be true. And this is why it's memorizing something like Romans 8.1 is so very important. It is both your shield and your sword to fight in the battle against condemnation. You need to rehearse it, to remember it, to know what is objective. We do this in our lives a lot of times when we feel something subjective, but we teach ourselves, we remind ourselves of what is objective. And for example, here's the most common illustration. Have, have you ever had, uh, have you heard of phantom vibration syndrome? It's not really a syndrome, but, but basically it, it's this thing, well that's what Wikipedia calls it, but it's, it's when your brain uh, perceives a sensation that is not actually there. And so for those in the, in the 21st century, you know, they didn't have this 15 years ago, but for us now, you have that feeling, you ever have that feeling where uh, you feel a vibration in your leg, in, in, in your pocket, and you feel like it's your phone vibrating, uh, and then you reach into your, your, your pocket, you pull out your phone, and there's no notification, no one's called, no one's texted, there's no 
email, your leg just senses a vibration. It happens to me all the time. And there are times that, you know, I'm at the table and I'm doing work and I feel the vibration sen sensation. And as I go to reach for my phone, I notice that my phone, I see my phone on my desk. And you feel the vibration in your leg, you're reaching for it, you see the phone, and in that moment, you know, your body is telling you you're getting a call, but your brain is telling you the phone is in front of you. And it can't be, right? The phone is literally in front of you. You know that what you are perceiving so vividly is so misleading. And in that moment, when you see that, you have to be a fool to then still check your pocket. Because although you are experiencing one thing, you know another to be true. I must trust what I know to be true more than what I feel to be true. When it comes to the gospel, we must learn to believe in our hearts and know in our heads that Christ Jesus has taken all the condemnation away from us. And it's so important because when we feel that condemnation, that guilt, that shame, it's so vivid, it's so overwhelming, it's so enslaving. But we know that that is no indicator of how God actually looks at us. Because when God looks at you, he has cleared you, he has forgiven you, he has restored you, he has reconciled you, he has washed you clean, he has declared you right in his eyes. We know this to be true. And therefore, you know what the Christian life is? If I had to summarize, the Christian life is really an outworking of Romans 8.1. The Christian life is not the working for Romans 8.1. You're not working in order to not be condemned. You're not working and appeasing God and impressing him so that he removes your condemnation. He has already done that in Jesus Christ. The Christian life is now that he has done that, what does it mean to live life in view of it? How can I learn and live out the truth that in Christ God declares a freeing declaration over me? It's sort of like Israel in Egypt. right? When Israel were slaves in Egypt, they were delivered by Moses. And I, and I heard someone say this. I can't remember who. But they basically said that they said, did you, did you realize, you look at the narrative, it took 40 days to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Right? That Israel, they were set free objectively from their bondage to slavery in Egypt, but it took the 40 years of wilderness wandering to get the slave enslaved mindset out of their own hearts. And that's much like the Christian life. We have been moved out of the sphere of condemnation, and we have been not only set free, but cleared of all charges. And it's been done in a victorious, once-for-all, glorious act of Jesus Christ. The only thing is, it'll take the rest of our lives to get rid of the sense of condemnation that we carry within ourselves. And how do you do this? You have to learn to rejoice in the gospel. You know, last week after I preached, or in the preaching, I challenged you to memorize Romans, you know, 8, and for us to memorize the chapter, and then I said next week for Romans 8, verse uh, 1 to 4, and right after service, somebody came and said, read Romans 8, or <laughs> recite it to me, and uh, by the grace of God, I had the first verse down, and you know what? That verse, because I've started there, has been so freeing every morning waking up and already feeling like I'm behind, already feeling condemned by that alarm clock that which you've snoozed three times already, to 
to wake up and to rehearse to myself, remember to myself, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To believe it again and again, no past sins can lurk around long enough and suck you back in under condemnation, and no present sins can drag you down into condemnation, and no future sin can bring you into condemnation if Christ has declared over you this day that you are forgiven. And this confidence, the confidence that I can know this day when I wake up that God is not frowning upon me, that confidence doesn't rest in you, but it rests in Christ. It doesn't rest in you. It's not like God is saying there's no, no condemnation because now the things you do are less offensive to him. It's not like there's no condemnation because now uh, you're able to stay away from sin and therefore you'll never fall under condemnation. It's not because now your actions are so holy and righteous that anything you do, God is just pleased with. The only way you remain out of condemnation is because Christ has taken it for you. You see, if God has simply just removed, the condem removed you from the condemnation, then maybe there's a way for you to fall back under it. But if God has removed the condemnation, what else is there for you to fall back into? You see, it's not like condemnation is here and God through Jesus Christ moves you over here because if that's the case, you may walk back under condemnation. But you were once under condemnation. God has taken that through his son, Jesus Christ. So now when there is no condemnation, it's not something you can fall back into. It's disappeared. It's been satisfied in Christ. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and forced in, he condemns sin in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Didn't mean he came as a sinner, but he came taking human nature. The Son of God, God himself, came as a man, took on the human flesh in order to die for us because that was the only way our condemnation would be removed. You know, there's this beautiful scene in uh, Tolkien's um, The Return of the King. The movie actually messes it up a little bit, but if you go back to the book, there's this beautiful scene, and it's in one of these final battle scenes, and um, Eowyn, um, so it's a woman, she, she's disguised herself as a soldier named uh, Dernhelm, and the reason she does this is because she wants to go fight uh, in, 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 the, in the battle with all the other men, so she has the appearance of man, and she goes into this battle, and in this final scene, all of the men are either slain or uh, their horses have been so startled that they've run off from the war. And so she's left, and she's confronting the evil witch king of Angmar, uh, who's the lord of the Nazgul, if you remember. Nazgul is those big, black-winged creatures. And as she stands before this terrifying agent of evil, uh, she draws her sword, and she says, Do what you will, but I will hinder it if I may. And the lord of the Nazgul says, Hinder me, thou fool. No living man may hinder me. And this is what... It says, it seemed that Dernhelm laughed, and the clear voice was like the ring of steel. But no living man am I. You look upon a woman. Eowyn I, I am, Eowyn's daughter. Be gone if you be not deathless, for living or dark undead, I will smite you. 
And smite him she does, because Tolkien writes this. Then tottering, struggling up with her last strength, she drove her sword between crown and mantle as the great shoulders bowed before her. The sword broke, sparkling to many shards. The crown rolled away with a loud clang. Eowyn fell, faced, uh, fell forward upon her foe. Below, the mantle and halberd were empty. Shapeless, they lay now on the ground, torn and tumbled, and a cry went up into the shuddering air and faded to a shrill wailing, passing with the wind, a voice bodiless and thin that died and was swallowed up and was never heard again in that age of this world. And in that, she defeated the Lord of the Nazgul. And friends, do you see in this picture, in this story, a picture of the gospel? That God himself came into this world, but he didn't come disguised as a man. He came in the likeness of human flesh. And he came to fight a battle that although we tried to fight, we could not win. And against the enemy of our sin and condemnation, he stood, and you could hear the evil one saying, hinder me, thou fool, no living man may hinder me. Except Christ Jesus was no ordinary man like Adam. He was the God-man. God come in the flesh. And as he did battle with our sin, he didn't simply defeat it and its condemnation. He decimated it. He destroyed it. And he did this by being condemned in his own flesh as he was crucified for you and for me. And because Jesus took all of your deserved condemnation, now that condemnation is like a shrill wailing that is passing with the wind, never to be heard again in this world. You see, man should get the punishment because it's man who sinned. But at the same time, it's only God who could make the payment for our sins because only God is perfect. And John Stott writes, the should of man and the could of God have come together in Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man who came to do what no man himself could do. He set you free from the law of sin and death and thus pronounces this very day a freeing declaration over you. You are not condemned, never to be condemned, no longer condemned if you belong to Jesus Christ. You know, that story I read at the beginning that Joshua Harris wrote, I didn't finish it. This is what he goes on to write. I cried out of shame from the overwhelming shame of it all. The rows of file shelves swirled in my tear-filled eyes. No one must ever, ever know of this room. I must lock it up and hide the key. But then as I pushed away the tears, I saw him. No, please not him. Not here. Oh, anyone but Jesus. I watched helplessly as he began to open the files and read the cards. I couldn't bear to watch his response. In the moments I could bring myself to look at his face, I saw a sorrow deeper than my own. He seemed to intuitively go to the worst of boxes. Why did he have to read every one? Finally, he turned and looked at me from across the room. He looked at me with pity in his eyes. But this was a pity that didn't anger me. I dropped my head, covered my face from my hands, began to cry again. He walked over and he put his arm around me. He could have said so many things, but he didn't say a word. He just cried with me. 
Then he got up and he walked back to the wall of files. Starting at, one end, starting at one end of the room, he took out a file. One by one, he began to sign his name over mine on each card. No, I shouted, rushing to him. All I could find to say was no, no. As I pulled the card from him, his name shouldn't be on these cards. But there it was, written in red, so rich, so dark, so alive. The name of Jesus covered mine. It was written with his blood. He gently took the card back. He smiled a sad smile and began to sign the cards. I don't think I'll ever understand how he did it so quickly, but the next instant, it seemed I heard him close the last file and walk back to my side. He placed his hand on my shoulder and said, it is finished. I stood up and he led me out of the room. There was no lock on its door. There were still cards to be written. You see friends, there may still be cards to be written because there are still sins to be committed. But in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation to be given. Do you have this joy at work in your life, the joy of a freeing declaration that in Jesus Christ, every condemnation has been removed? God's condemnation, self-condemnation, the condemnation of others, the condemnation of the world. That yesterday, today, and tomorrow, God does not look upon you with a condemning frown, but with a commending smile because you are hidden in Jesus Christ and he sees you as he sees his perfect son. You know, the gospel gives us many reasons to rejoice even if the world gives us none. And this week, God gives us this reason. In Jesus Christ, you have a freeing declaration. No condemnation. Let's pray. Maybe I could just give a few moments for us to respond to God personally before we are led into song. So I invite you to just take this time now and as the Spirit not condemns but as He convicts would we respond in prayer. Amen. Friends, now receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father Almighty and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen. Hear the words of dismissal this afternoon. Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Go in peace, friends.